I kept trying to ask them, like, so why, why didn't you go public? And they're like, you know, why didn't we become purple? I mean, they, it, it wasn't even part of their mindset to go public. And and part of that is that when you go pub, public, the, the incentive structure changes, mm -hmm. right? You, if you're Tim Cook at Apple, you could make $10 million personally from a deal. You, you're never going to lose $10 million personally from a deal. That's going to be dispersed among shareholders. Brown Brothers still, every deal they do, it's partner's money. And, and they could lose the money. My guest today is Zachary Carabell. Zachary is a prolific author on the subjects of history, economics, and international relations, having written 13 books. His latest book is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. The book is a sweeping history of the legendary private investment firm and how it has evolved from the early 1800s to the present. Inside Money gives the reader a tour of American finance and the massive role Brown Brothers played in building our nation. I recently sat down with Zachary and we talked about how Brown Brothers helped create the capital market system and lessons we can learn from their approach to finance. Zachary, thanks so much, man, for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And after I read your book, uh, it just like, wow, I had to speak to you because there were so many things that I learned. And uh, let's get right to it. The name of the book is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Charles. Okay, Zachary, you wrote a lot of books, man, 13 of them. And this is number 13. My first question is, why did you pick Brown Brothers to write about when I worked on Wall Street? I used to pass their office building. I didn't think anyone living still worked there. It was about as boring as can be. Their logo wasn't a logo. It's just the name on a building. You never saw anyone walk in or out. You never saw, I never met anyone on Wall Street who came from Brown Brothers. So why did you pick what seems to be a boring, staid, non-flashy company to write a book about? Well, first, uh, and thank you for that scintillating introduction to, uh, to the topic. <laughs> I wanted to write a book about the crucial and central role of money in creating American power in the 19th century, and then the way in which the men who made the money, and they were all men, and this is a book about white men, uh, for better and for worse, and how the men who made the money of the 19th century then created the global economic and to some degree international system of the 20th century. Uh, so the, you know, the men who made the money in the 19th century create the international system of the 20th and the partners of Brown Brothers in the mid middle of the 20th century are crucial to the formation of everything that we now, the, the architecture of the world that we live in today. The World Trade Organization, the United Nations, the national security state, the Pentagon, the Defense Department, you know, all of which are outgrowths of World War II and of which several Brown Brothers partners were, were sort of present, as Dean Acheson said, at the creation. Uh, and then kind of what happened, right? Where did, where did that sort of mid-20th century WASP establishment elite, what happened to it? And, and what replaced it in the late 20th and early 20th century? And there's no firm that can tell that story other than Brown Brothers because they were around from 1800 and they're still around today, even though most people don't even realize that they're still around today. And... I didn't realize when I wrote the book, so I, I, read, I knew two things when I wrote the book. I knew what you just said, that they, that they were kind of this 
you know, stayed meta rectitude and that that was going to be a challenge to write a narrative about. And it's one of the reasons why there's no book about them. Right. And I, I, I did that once before in my writing career, I wrote a short biography of the Chester Allen Arthur, who most people don't even know was president of the United States in 1881 and is, is therefore not one of the more memorable presidents. But, you know, I think it's interesting to write about things that no one writes about as long as there's a reason. And the fact that they've been around for 225 years is not in and of itself a reason. Like living long is not necessarily living interesting. Uh, but they are a way to tell the story I just told about. But as I got into the book and as I learned about them in a way that I, I didn't fully know, um, both their 19th century presence in the United States was much more central than I think I even realized. And the fact that they are still around exactly as you just described and the fact that their profile is as you described it actually says, I think, says something profound about what Wall Street has become and what the financial systems become and says something profound in a not good way about what Wall Street has become and what it could have been or could still morph into in the future. Okay, hold on to all of that 21st centric stuff. We'll get to that in a second. But yeah, when that's I, my tease. I got that's you. My tease. I got you. For those who do want to continue listening, do so. If it's not going to be, it's it's. And you know what I find fascinating about this book? Uh, and I'll tell you how I, how I found you. Uh, every Saturday, I look through the review section of the Wall Street Journal. And I look through all the book reviews there, which are great. I, I, I live for that, you know, that Saturday edition of the, when, when it doesn't come on Saturday, I get really peeved. But that four sections of the Wall Street Journal, the review section has a tremendous amount of books, tremendous amount of wisdom in there. So you can just read the reviews and some of them are absolutely great. I saw your book, I said, you know, I'm always interested in economic history, how we became what we are and why the United States became what it is. What were the differences? And your book wasn't an easy read. It wasn't something that should sit down, you know, just breeze through it. It was a little dense at times. You go into a lot of detail, a lot of stuff. I found myself going, blah, up. but then you start moving on, you'd be in a railroad and holy smokes. So with that, <laughs> with that setup. I want to step all the way back to the beginning of the book because like Lehman Brothers, which started in cotton in the South, the Brown family started there as well. And when you read the history of Brown Brothers and later Brown Brothers Harriman, it's really the economic development of the United States through this firm. No? Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, they are... I, I joked at one point, they're a little like the Zelig of, of American financial history. Like at every crucial moment of, of the evolution of the United States, there's a Brown Brothers banker in the second row, bank back left, looking like a banker, uh, who has no interest in being the story, but without whom there is no story. Right, right, right. You know, right. They are the, the lubricant for the system that makes these things possible whether it's the creation of the first trans, the first major passenger steam railroad in the United States and frankly in the world. I mean, the B&O Railroad was the first. Right, right, hold on, don't, don't, don't get ahead there, don't get ahead there. Don't let's get start. ahead to B&O, right, we're not, we're let's, not. Let's go right, let's from the beginning. So you have this immigrant, start us from there. He comes from Ireland to the United States uh, and gets into the cotton business, linens, right, it was linens? Linens. Linen. He was an Irish linen merchant. Okay. Linen was the big product of Ireland. He flees the Troubles. Alexander Brown flees Belfast. He was probably, you know, upper middle class successful merchant caught in the Protestant 
Catholic English triangle that you know was besetting Ireland in the late 18th century and obviously continued to until the late 20th century. Um, and he goes to Baltimore because he had a cousin in Baltimore in 1800. And Baltimore was a pretty cool place back in the 1800s. It's an economic wow. hub. Yes. Why? Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York had already supplanted Boston as the primary kind of economic trading hubs with, uh, with Britain. And even after the Revolutionary War, the primary economic relationship between the United States and the world was with Great Britain. So all the trade went through either Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York. Some obviously went through. And why is Baltimore, why is Baltimore so important? Why, why, forget, why is trade center around there? Well, first of all, because it was close to the tobacco south up until 1800. So all those tobacco plantations needed to ship their tobacco abroad. They did so through Baltimore. Um, and then as tobacco gave way to cotton, which it does sort of starting the 1790s with Eli Whitney, the cotton gin, you know, the, the ability to mass produce cotton, uh, Baltimore becomes the primary cotton trading hub to Liverpool, uh, which was the primary hub in the UK. And, and that's how the Brown family makes its really big money is getting into the cotton trade, uh, moving out of the linen trade. They, they trade a lot of other stuff. And I mean, at one point in the 1820s, they trade just about everything there is to be traded. Right. And they own a bunch of ships. But they get into the cotton trade, as you just alluded with Lehman Brothers. I mean, in many ways, the Brown family, the Brown brothers of the 19th century are like the earlier precursor wasp version of the Lehman Brothers. Um, but a very different culture. You know, yeah, and, if, and, and if, part if, of the book is about that. I get the culture. It was the opportunity there. And people don't realize that cotton was the semiconductors of their day. They, they were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. They were important. They had a large percentage of GDP, uh, yep. especially in the United States at the time. They were extremely important. And, 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 the, and the most important thing about that was uh, that um, you needed a way to facilitate buyer and seller uh, transactions because, as you write in the book, there is no clearinghouse between two parties. Right. And there's no foreign exchange system. So all the cotton is grown in the United States and sold in Britain. So it's grown in a dollar economy and it's sold in a pound economy. And someone had to figure out what the right ratio was between dollars and pounds without there being any international clearing, right? There's no printed rate. And, and the Browns become so important to the cotton trade. First of all, they control somewhere between 10 and 15% of the cotton trade by 1830. And a lot of that has to do with Alexander Brown's older son, William Brown, who he dispatches to Liverpool and who becomes a grandee in, in Britain. In fact, becomes a member of parliament, one of the richest men in Liverpool. I mean, I could have written a whole book about the English legacy of Brown Brothers, which becomes something called Brown Shipley. And uh, they become such a trusted merchant of cotton that their rates, right, what is a dollar worth in pounds, become the rates for a while. They, they were called Brown's published rates and they were used by all the other merchants as the reference point for how to, how to do this. The other thing which you allude to is, and this wasn't a cotton issue as much as it's always been a, a, a transatlantic or ocean-bearing trade issue, is if I part with my goods, you know, if I'm a cotton merchant and I want to sell something abroad, how do I know someone's going to actually pay me for it on the other side? Because once the cotton leaves my, you know, it's gone. And if you're someone on the other side and you, you want to know, how do I know that I'm going to get the goods if I pay for them? And and so you always need it. That's what merchants do, right? They they solve for that problem. And, and the Browns, quickly 
sort of move away from being physical merchants of cotton to paper facilitators of all the cotton trade. Um, also because they don't want to, you know, there's only so much you can scale the physical trade. You need ships and you need bulk and warehouses you know, it's a, you know. and it's a capital intensive business. Right. Um, they also, you know, they didn't want to be complicit in the slave system, even though they were completely complicit in the slave system. And the more they could kind of take one step Remove, away by no. just dealing with paper and not dealing with the physical trade of cotton and having agents in Mobile and having agents in New Orleans, they could kind of semi-rationalize their complicity in a system that they, they knew was profoundly immoral, but which they were profiting immensely from. Well, we could say the same thing today with the way iPhones are made in sweatshops in China and, you know, in, in terms of a lot of the goods we get from China uh, and how they're made and whatever it might be, we're, we're complicit in the sense since we're buying it, but we don't promote it. It's not something that we're proud of doing. It's, it's a necessary, I wouldn't say necessary evil. It's something that we try to stay arm's length away from. Right. So, and they were, I, I they totally were, get it. That was their issue. I mean, one of the things that I, I realized also in writing the book was it occurred to me that I'd never, you know, I got a PhD in American history and I thought about these things, but I hadn't thought about them in, in this way that one of the reasons that Lincoln says on the eve of the civil war that, you know, you can't have a nation that's half slave, half slave and half free was the recognition that so much of the Northern economy. And again, Brown brothers is exhibit a for this was embedded in profiting from cotton so that even if you weren't growing it even if you weren't working a plantation you were you were benefiting from from the system i think part of what he was saying was the reality of the united states was a half slave nation was literally a entirely slave economy so you, you couldn't have a half free half slave because they weren't separate economies they were one economy that the north was benefiting from and if that was morally untenable at 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 some point you had to just you had to end it, which the British had done way earlier, by the way. Um, yeah, but hang on. The British British did away with it on their shores, but were certainly happy to do it on our shores and let us do the dirty yeah. work. So The yeah, outsourcing of morality. Yeah, <laughs> it, that's what we're doing today with semiconductors and the whole electronics. So, so, you know, it's hard to judge. It's, it's you know, not hard. I think it's, it's, it's morally wrong to judge a society out of context of their time. Yeah, so and I don't, I think in the book, I'm, I, my, my point in this is, one can acknowledge, look at, and and confront without judging. Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm totally good. You don't have to go any further than that. So for this relationship to have buyer and seller to, for a transaction where you have, by the way, the, the, the Rothschilds were the same way. They send, uh, you know, they, uh, sends, uh, he sends his sons to the four corners of the earth. They're the trusted agents to facilitate because there's no capital market system. Right. There's no way to get goods from A to B with currency, uh, with fluctuations and and, and, and currency exchange, as well as you need someone with a solid reputation in order to say, I'll take the money, charge a fee, and make sure the other party is going to get it and charge a fee there. It's, it's a brilliant system. And, and I think the term that um, uh, the Browns used was the, the, the William and, and his father, character is king. Yep. Right? It, 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 that, it, reputation was everything. And uh, I think the term was, uh, shoemaker, know thy last. Right, stick to thy last, which stick was Alexander last. Brown's constant. And he writes all these letters to his kids from 1800 to till his death in the early 1830s. And they're like this compendium of homilies. They read like some weird amalgam of Polonius's wisdom and, and it's like, poor it's Richard. Like, it's, like, it's like poor Richard, yeah. I was thinking of poor Richard's uh, Ben Franklin. I was reading. I guess that was the style in those days, right? It was. Uh, yeah. And he's constantly lecturing his kids and, and drumming home these, what we would consider to be kind of business cliches, you know, character 
trust is, is hard to gain and easy to lose. Uh, only go into business with reputable people. Know your customers. Well, well it's the same thing uh, everyone does every year when they when they flock to to uh, Omaha, Nebraska to listen to Berkshire yeah. to Warren Buffett. You can't make a good deal with a bad person, you know. Right. No, it's a great it's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, the Buffett example is perfect. But unlike Buffett, they actually create a multi generational business. And what's I guess fascinating about Brown Brothers is, look, by the time Lehman Brothers implodes, there are no Lehmans left. Um, there are no Brown's family members running Brown Brothers. There was four generations that did run it. But the culture remained completely what Alexander Brown lays out in 1810, this kind of, you know, it, it, where, where the, a, a time of chaos is not a time to take risk. The time to be prepared for a crisis is before, not during. Um, crises will happen, right? This was a This was a kind of a culture and a family that understood that you better go to sleep every night prepared for the world changing negatively tomorrow because it does and it will and it always has and you and you'll never know when right there's no nobody writes you a letter the day before and says oh by the way yeah. well, they so they kind of well, run they, a business well, they say in the market nobody rings a bell at the top so no right. one's going to ring a bell and tell you tomorrow so your reputation better be good the people you do business with better be accountable and you better have, have vetted them properly did the right exchange rate so your books are really even at the end of the night where you're and that's so the opposite of what Wall Street became. Right. You know? And so that's it, what's fascinating. Yeah. Right? I mean, that this, this, and, and, and that culture in no way precluded them making a lot of money. Right. I mean, the, Alexander Brown was one of the richest men in the United States in the 1830s. You know, we don't remember it the way we remember the Astors, right? Because the Astors wanted their name everywhere. So it's like Astor Place and Foundations. We don't remember it the way we remember Morgan. Vanderbilt or, or Morgan, Carnegie. Yeah, Morgan, they, yeah. Yeah. They wanted their names out there. So the other part of the culture was your clients and your business and the family is what matters, not your name, you know, meaning not your name in public. Um, I mean, this was a press shy family and, and it's a press shy firm. Right? This is a firm who in the 19th century for the family and in the 20th century and into the 21st does not want a book written about them. Right. This And there's a reason that there's no books written about them because Unlike all those others, their aspiration to greatness was was much more embedded in what they were doing uh, and in what they achieved than it was in making their name famous. Right. You don't see like the Brown any of someone a trader from Brown Brothers uh, did so and so today, or took an un, you know took a huge position and almost sunk the firm, or right. uh, bought CMOs and CDOs back in two thousand. You didn't even hear about them in two thousand eight during the financial crisis. They weren't too big to fail. They weren't over leveraged. They weren't involved in any of this crap and, and uh, survived. Yeah, but, but let's hold on to that because I definitely want to get, you just jumped 200 years. I'm still fascinated with what happened at the point because I think it's so important. Many of us wake up on third base uh, thinking we hit the triple, thinking we hit a triple. But it's these guys who built this financial system that sets America apart and really propels America way ahead of every other nation on earth because they created the plumbing. They created the financial plumbing. But even in the 19th century, what's interesting about that, so by the time the children inherit the father's empire in the 1830s, and it's really two of the children, William and Liverpool and James in New York, the other two brothers sort of step aside. It's, a, it's not temperamentally suited. They were quite competent. There were four of them. So the two sons who then sort of give the business over next generation to one son in New York and, and then a, a bunch of non-Brown partners in Liverpool, who then become the leaders of the Bank of England. Um, what, what's amazing is that they knew they were born on third base. They didn't pretend they had hit a triple. 
And their whole mantra and the mantra of the father and the sons to the sons to the sons was, if you're born on third base, you had better think about what your responsibility is to the larger society yeah. that yeah. you are in a position of privilege towards. So they, the, the other aspect of their culture was, we can't thrive privately unless the commons on which we're embedded thrives as well. Right, right, and that's right. why they helped build the B&O Railroad in 1828 to kind of make Baltimore competitive with Philadelphia and New York, not because funding a, a railroad was going to make them any money, and it did not make them any money. They, unlike a lot of other railroad investors, didn't lose all their money. Um, but it wasn't done for that. It was done as a public works funded by private money for public good. Right. And and that's another aspect of them that I found fascinating is this idea of if you're born on third base, claim it. Don't pretend that, you know, you're like special. You are special. You're not special because you're better. You're special because you're privileged. And if you're privileged, own it. And then what are your responsibilities to the larger society? So at the time, you keep bringing up the B&O. So let's talk about B&O Railroad, Monopoly fame. So B&O Railroad. Uh, Baltimore, Ohio, is a really important point because at that time, travel within the United States just it was em- it was en- enormously difficult just to travel from New York to Baltimore, which now you can do in about a four-hour drive, took about four days. Yeah, I think it was. And even, that's the weather was good. Uh, right, right. To get from Boston, I remember reading in um, in uh, Ron Chernow's book on uh, I'm sorry, McCullough's book on uh, Adams. It was easier to go from Boston to New York via the Atlantic Ocean than it was riding your horse. Yeah. It was through these Indian trails, which were extremely small and narrow, and it was cold and hazardous, and it just took such a long time. And that's something, another thing we take for granted is we're able to move, transport goods throughout this country from point to point seamlessly, seamlessly, where to do that back in the day, and then the advent of the B&O, was to create a railroad, which was the, I don't know, it was the Tesla of its day. Agreed? Exactly. It was, it was the moonshot. It was a moonshot. Right. It was a moonshot. And they. And it was done entirely because the biggest change in those years was the opening of the Erie Canal from Albany uh, to, the, to Lake Erie through, and Buffalo, because that allowed for water transport from the original coastal areas over the Adirondacks uh, to what was then the Ohio Valley or the opening of that kind of area of the United States. And that's partly what gave New York such incredible Access, advantages, right. the Erie Canal. Um, right. I mean, it had other advantages at Great Harbor, but that was the the real leapfrog moment. Philadelphia started building a canal, the Susquehanna, which was also going to connect Philadelphia to um, the interior. Although- right. So, so let me start. Let me start. I want, I want our listeners to definitely get up to speed on this. Moving goods from the East Coast, where they were coming in from all ports, uh, from really England and, and other countries in France, coming to New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore. Now, yeah, as the country expanded westward, you know how to get these goods from point A to the West. And the West was a, a formidable uh, barrier. There were, there were, there were mountains. There were there were valleys, there were waterways. It took it was it was a is a technological marvel that they had to get goods from point A. So the way to do it then was through the canal system, through waterway. Right. These guys came up and said, you know what? We're gonna do a moonshot. And the moonshot is a steam railroad. Sure. Right. You gotta be crazy. They did it because they were behind, right? So that it would Baltimore the was behind. Baltimore was behind, right. 
Baltimore is fine. So by the time they could have built a canal, it would have been too late in Philadelphia and the and New York City and to some degree the District of Columbia, which was also funding a canal. Um, and just to your point, for anybody who understands the geography of the United States, there are no east-west waterways, natural waterways, big ones in the United States. I mean, you know, the Ohio River kind of does a diagonal, um, but not in the not between sort of the Mississippi and the Atlantic. So it's north-south axis. It's all north-south, and everything else is sort of mountains. <clears throat> so any, anything, any way to get east-west, human beings had to create, um, and. They just—it was kind of—it was both—it was both a moonshot and a hail mary simultaneously. To use two cliches, and they said, "Look, we're going to be behind, so we're going to do this thing." There had been one small passenger railroad uh, in Manchester or in the, in that area of the Midlands in the UK, and they didn't even know that steam engines would work. They had a whole contingency of they were going to have the the train drawn on tracks by horses. Which, the which, which, by the way, you read the book. They tried that. It was a race to see if that technology or the new technology, which the big thing with, you know, which I did, I started reading more books about, uh, um, um, I really need to read a lot more. There was one book I forgot that dealt with all about the steam, uh, steam engine being a revolution. These things blew up. They were hazardous. Yeah. And in fact, that, that there was a <clears throat> test race for the Baltimore and Ohio with the directors. Um, and the horse actually wins because the steam engine explodes. at the end. Right. Uh, which was always a problem, right? You never want your engine to explode. And so, I mean, people died. Like trains were, were dangerous. People Hazardous. died on trains in these years. Yeah. And look, by uh, the way, the trains were an issue way into the 1870s and 80s yeah. when you had uh, east-west and west-east were going on the same tracks. So yeah. the timing had to be perfect. And that's where the creator, just as an aside, totally parenthetic because I collected pocket railroad watches, uh, these things had to be accurate because so many lives were lost when they, when they used the same track. And they would, you know, crash. So they used to have these uh, watches, these railroad watches that needed to be, the railroadmen had to pay for it on their own. They were spot checked to they had to be within, I think, 10 or 15 seconds or whatever in different positions. So we take a lot of this stuff for granted. But just moving goods from point A to point B was not only hazardous, not only costly, but in many cases impossible because of nature. Right. So they build this thing. But they they don't put up all the money and they they kind of galvanize but the, the entire city of baltimore the citizens of baltimore this is there's a stock issue that raises a public stock issue and people invest in it the way they would invest in war bonds later on as a i mean patriotic is probably the wrong word but as a civic an act of civic engagement and the state of maryland puts in some money the, the federal government in these years you know one of the big contests uh, before the Civil War was should or how much should the federal government spend on public works and infrastructure? You know, now we're having a debate about whether or not we should spend a trillion dollars on roads and you know high-speed internet. In those years, it wasn't even clear to people that the federal government had been empowered to spend any money on uh, on infrastructure, especially inter interstate. Why should Rhode Island pay taxes for Maryland to build a railroad? So there had been some money for the Cumberland Road, which was a big, you know, another big public works. But basically the, the Baltimore and Ohio was funded, yes, by the state of Maryland, but not by the federal government and by the Brown family. And, and it eventually gets built, but like everything else, it takes longer, it costs more than expected. And, and frankly, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the sense of it doesn't make Baltimore competitive as an economic hub compared to Philadelphia 
but certainly at, at compared to New York. And, and, and frankly, New York had so many advantages at that point that it's not clear that anything could have changed that trajectory. But it certainly changes the railroad trajectory in the United States. It creates it. It starts. It's the start, right? Yeah. It's the whole system. And what's fascinating is, is the Browns then don't get involved in the later 19th century railroad boom. That's speculation. These guys stayed away from all sorts of speculation. And as anybody knows who's looked at this, the, the, the people who made money on the railroads in the late 19th century were almost never the people who built the railroads. Right? The people who built the railroads, who funded the first railroad companies, went bankrupt. The people who made the money, the J.P. Morgans and the Fricks and the, and, and, and the Huntington, most of them made money buying the bonds on, for pennies after the initial investors went bust. The original value investors. Right. Yeah. Right. They, all the risk was taken out. They were basically uh, buying a, a, a track. Distressed for, asset. Yeah, distressed asset. Pennies on the dollar. Yeah. And then they controlled huge amounts, huge amounts, and created monopolies. Okay. So they create this uh, B&O railroad, now possible to ship goods westward. Uh, and by the side, by the 1820s or so, the transatlantic trade is still dominated a big way by cotton. So everyone's yep. making money on cotton in so many different ways. Move forward another 30, 40 years or so, uh, steam, steam engine, uh, what do you call it, uh, the ships, the steamships, steamships. There's one, to get mail, mail, M-A-I-L, physical, you know, postal mail, uh, um, uh, snail mail was a big deal. Yep. To get it from one side of the Atlantic to the other. Tell us about that. So the Royal Mail, the British Royal Mail, which is part of the British government, pays for an upgrade in the transatlantic mail trade. And they support Samuel Cunard, who is a Canadian Nova Scotian who creates what becomes the Cunard Lines, which is the, the, the you know, most people know from the Titanic. It was Cunard and White Star that did the Titanic. The American version of it um, was funded by Brown and a man named Edward Knight Collins, and it's called the Collins Line. And Edward Knight Collins is like a P.T. Barnum figure. You know, he's this prototypical hustler. He's the kind of guy who like buys nice clothes but can't be bothered to button his shirt. And he's he's every bit the hustler, crude, and he's exactly the kind of person that the, the Brown family, the next generation, the sons, would have really looked down on, you know, as a provincial hustler, <clears throat> speculator, risk taker. But James Brown, who was the younger son, who had taken over the New York office, was feeling in the family dynamic overshadowed by his brother William, who was becoming really the head of the house. And he's convinced by Collins to help underwrite these new steamships. Um, which, by the way, let me just interject, which is a big risk. This is, right. a, this is outside of their wheelhouse, pun intended. So it, and it's it, like... William had wanted to do the same thing in the 18, in like the late 18 teens. He'd wanted to open a cotton mill and he tried to convince his father, like, we'll put the money in, we'll do a cotton mill. We're doing the cotton trade. Why don't we vertically integrate and start making the cloth? And the father says, oh, my son, that's <laughs> such a, that's such a dumb idea. People who do that, who, 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 who don't stick to their last, who diversify, they're the ones who lose money, who get into too many business lines. You know, by the way, this is, this is Warren Buffett, right? Stay within your circle of competence. Uh, going outside the circle of competence, the, the father wisely saw that that's, we're not going to have any competitive edge. What are we doing? So James, you know, he wants to show up his brother, <clears throat> wants to make a mark, and he, he's convinced by Collins to put in a million dollars 
of the firm's money, which was a you know a good chunk of money then. It was not enough, quote unquote, to sink the firm if it had all been lost. So it was risk capital, but it wasn't like betting the farm. Uh, but it still was a was a venture. And Collins eventually, because of the Mexican War, convinces Congress to subsidize the Collins line, basically saying to them, look, the English are owning the transatlantic trade with the Cunard line because the British government's paying for the ships. Do you really want that? And when the Mexican War comes on and everybody gets nationalistic and full of national security and people in Congress are saying, you, we can't let the British own the transatlantic trade. We have to have our own ships. Then Collins is able to convince Congress to start underwriting the Collins line uh, for like eight years. And these are, I mean, these are expensive. Like each ship was losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Which and, and, it, and the reason they're, they're, they're yeah. they, the reason the government's subsidizing this because they're carrying the U.S. mail back and forth, yes. right? Because we had, our, the U.S. mail was being carried by by English ships, by the, by the right? So it was a national, it was, it was national pride as well uh, that motivated them to do that. And it was an awareness that as the United States continued to get more powerful, it, you know, there was a vestigial <clears throat> sense of, we're going to want a Navy. We're not going to want the, the the sea lines owned by the British forever. So there was also that future looking aspect to it. Uh, and, and, and Collins becomes, you know, publicly prominent. Uh, the ships are fast. They market themselves partly on trying to break speed records for the crossing. How long does, it take? How long does it take? How long does it take to get, uh, uh I mean, it, it's, it cuts down from like four to seven weeks from wind. Uh, to anywhere from like ten days to to twenty days, depending. I mean, the the the, the westward crossing is is has the speeds are very different depending on the winds. So, so um, you, just, you, th you think about that. That's cut that cuts the travel down by let's say seventy percent. Yeah, that's like someone coming up with an invention today to fly from New York to California. Let's say six hours to do it in close to I don't know three, two or three yeah. hours. That's pretty amazing. And on a regular schedule, which had yeah. already started prior to that, these packet lines, you know, were the, the first time the ships actually left at a set time and a set date. It used to be the ships left right. when their holes were full of cargo. So you'd show up at the docks and say, I'm looking for passage. And they'd say, you know, we're either going to leave tomorrow or we're going to leave in two weeks, depending on how long it takes us to fill up the hold. The packet lines and then the steamships left on a schedule, which also is, you know, that's one of those boring things, but like other boring things. Revolutionary. revolutionary. Yeah. yeah. You know, you think about this yeah. now, if you wanted to ship something here, you, you put your goods on a truck. When is this going to be in, in California? As soon as we fill the truck up. <laughs> Once the truck's filled, it could be a day, it could be another month and a half. Tough for perishables. Um, so it's going quite well, except for the fact that it's, it's economically not viable without government subsidy. And convincing the Congress to keep subsidizing it after the end of the Mexican War these things wax and wane, right? When people are like, oh, we've got to defend our shores and stand up against foreign enemy, foreign adversaries or competitors that crest during a war and then the war ends and people are like, oh, why are we spending all this money? Um, the British meanwhile keep spending all this money. And in fact, for a brief moment in 1852, the, the it seems like the US is actually going to own the transatlantic routes because all the Cunard ships are diverted to the Black Sea by the British government because of the Crimean War. Uh, but that's like a total false dawn. And then there's a huge disaster where the, the, the jewel of the Collins line sinks the US, the, the, the Arctic sinks in a totally freak accident. Like ships never rarely ran into each other. Just the sea lanes were not that crowded. Um, so the ship sinks, uh, James Brown's 
granddaughter and child die. You know, they, they drown in the ship. They happen to be on the crossing. And it's used by the Brown family as a sort of uh, cautionary tale. Yeah, they don't go so far. I mean, they're not arrogant enough to believe that God personally intervenes to teach them a lesson about speculation, um, which really would have been the height of sort of, you know, Protestant arrogance, the idea that we're important enough for God to <laughs> do this. But they, they certainly <clears throat> take it as a, we, we tried this sort of burst into the public, you know, to be one of the hustlers, to be one of the it's movers not, and it's, shakers. It's, it's, it's not our way. It's not our not way. Our this, way. Th this doesn't work. Know. This doesn't work for us. And it's also a tragedy. You know, the, yeah. the, uh, uh, a good part of the family dies. I think they're buried here in Brooklyn, right? Um, yeah, at the at the at the Plymouth Church or near near there. Although to be, in, it's interesting. Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher, is the, the celebrity preacher. You know, the the Jimmy yeah. Graham uh, of his day, um, Billy Graham, not Jimmy Graham. Sorry. Mm. And uh, Beecher takes this as an opportunity to really like stick it to the Brown family. And I, I you know, Beecher's a interesting, colorful character ends up having one of the trials of the century, his own adulterous affair that becomes this media event later on. Uh, but he basically uses the sinking of the ship to thunderously decry the materialism and greed of Americans of whom the Browns he, he holds up as exhibit A. He doesn't go quite so far as to say it, but he basically says, God is punishing the capitalists and the Brown family. Right, um, right, and so we 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 mourn the loss of life and you know all that, but they had it coming. It's got, and just as a side note, a footnote to history: his sister is Harry Beecher Stowe, who writes Uncle Tom's Cabin, yeah, who I mean, is the cause of one of the you know I mean when Lincoln reading when Lincoln meets her goes so you're the little lady that caused this war, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So okay, so this is a big deal. Uh, so we're in the 1850s now, and. So you see the Harrimans, the Brown brothers rather, they're in the beginning phase of creating a capital market system. Then they're behind transportation. I'm sorry, before that, letters of credit, uh, facilitating buyer and seller, uh, acting as a merchant bank, uh, exchange rates, capital markets, uh, now behind transportations, and you never hear about them. They, they, just, they just blend into the... Blend into the um, Blend into the background. And they do that because they're not willing to speculate in the railroads. Um, but they're willing to make a lot of money doing a lot of other stuff. And they are willing to be in like second position. So a lot of the railroad deals when these things were refinanced are syndicates. You know, Morgan, J.P. Morgan makes a huge amount of money because he becomes the leader of a lot of syndicates. It's not like Morgan is putting up all this Morgan money to buy the vestiges of the Union Pacific or the Central Illinois or all the different railroads that he's invested in. He he says, okay, I'll put in my cap, I'll put in the first capital, and then he gets all these other people to put in capital. And the Browns are often part of those capital groups. They're just, you know, not in the top five investors. So they'll put a little in here and a little in there and a little in here, but but it's all within a risk spectrum of never too much to lose and never too exposed to any one line and never operating them. You know, right. and, and, and never underwriting a new railroad. And I mean, to some degree, look, they could no more be totally not in railroads than an investor in the 1990s could like totally not be in tech. But they're not underwriting the more risky and they're, they, they steer clear of risk capital. 
And so they occupy niches of the market, like they, they get into like secondary finance. I mean, this is very wonky stuff. And I don't actually write about this a lot in the book um, because it's, it's too wonky even for me. What they were doing in, in the 1880s and 1890s, just like what they're doing today is, is pretty wonky, um, but it's necessary, right? It's, it's the lubrication to the system and, and their willingness to kind of make quiet money um, I think is also an underrated necessity in a financial system. So let's move forward. Let's move all the way to uh, when Prescott Bush and the Yale crowd and all the wasps come into play in 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. The firm becomes the um, really the poster child of where all these people of good breeding and who believe that they're destined to run the markets. And they believe that because they've been, that message has been hammered home by the Brown family, by these letters, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> the Spider-Man theory of history, the, the playing fields of Groton, and they all go to Groton, right? The Roosevelt's all go to Groton, the Browns all go to Groton. They all go to Yale. Um, and, and those schools at this time are, are the finishing schools for the elite. And I say that actually not with any particular judgment. They, they were the finishing schools in that their importance was less about what anyone learned. I mean, it was a rote curriculum. They, you know, memorized Livy and learned Latin, but it was really much more about training their character and, and, and preparing them to be the leaders of society uh, in the belief that if you're privileged and you've got money, and you're white and you're male and you're Protestant, you have a responsibility to lead society. And, and, and that's your role. Um, and the Browns, like that's their mother's milk. And, and that's really crystallized in, at Yale in the 1910s when all these who would soon become the leading partners of the firm in the 1930s. And you alluded to Prescott Bush, who's the patriarch of the Bush family dynasty. Most people don't realize that Prescott Bush's money, the, the money that, that leads to the Bushies is a combination of Harriman Railroad money uh, and Brown Brothers financial money. And another partner was Robert Lovett, also a combination of the Harriman and, and, and Brown families, who eventually becomes Assistant Secretary of War in World War II, helps create the modern Air Force, becomes the second number two to George Marshall, both at the State Department and Defense Department. And in that role is crucial to you know, the creation of the atomic bomb, the creation of the modern Air Force, the creation of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is the precursor of the WTO, the National Security Act of 1947. And then, of course, Avril Harriman himself, who occupies like 10 different roles from Secretary of Commerce, Ambassador of Moscow, Governor of New York, Assistant Secretary of State, and then also one of the architects of Vietnam, uh, the policy toward Vietnam under Kennedy. And Lovett, too, becomes an advisor to both Kennedy and, and Johnson as the wise men. Um, and they do this because they believe they had a responsibility to serve. Right? Where does Bar Barbara Bush's family come in? Uh, not, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, I'm sorry, Prescott's wife. Dorothy. Yeah, she's so Dorothy, a... Dorothy Walker. Walker, Walker yes. Uh, is the daughter of George Walker, who had been hired by Averill Harriman to be the president of Harriman and Co Harriman's investment firm in the 1920s, which is the product of E.H. Harriman's railroad fortune um and and you know george herbert walker was <clears throat> apparently not 
so good at running a firm, but I don't think Harriman actually really wanted anyone to run his firm. I mean, he hired someone to do it because he needed to, but he was not so good at delegating and his younger brother Roland ends up running more of it. But Walker was a really good golfer and a great man about town. He liked buying houses, including the one in Kennebunk, which becomes Walker's point. Uh, so that's the Walker money. And then Prescott himself starts working uh, at Harriman. And then when Harriman and, and Brown Brothers merge in 1930 as a kind of a, as a defense against the Great Depression, uh, Prescott becomes the, one of the junior, but then leading partners of Brown Brothers Harriman in the 1930s. And bring us to today. Where, where were, where's Brown Brothers today? In so weirdly enough, they, um, they still exist. They have 5,000 employees. They make somewhere between two and two and a half billion dollars in revenue, and they probably make between five hundred and seven million dollars, hundred million dollars a year in profit, uh, which is a lot of money, right? I mean, it may not be a lot of money compared to Goldman Sachs, and it's not a lot of money compared to J.P. Morgan, but for like a human organization that remained a partnership in a private company, it's it's more than like, huh? And what's interesting is back to what you began the interview with. You know, you pass them, you never knew anyone worked there. They're never in the news, right? No, there's no Brown Brothers. That the, the last time Brown Brothers was on the front page probably was when the partners retired in 1968. The, the when Lovett, Bush, uh, and Harriman kind of all retire in 1968 mm. after they have a 150th anniversary party. And uh, if they were publicly traded, I, I don't know if they would be eight billion dollars, fifteen billion dollars. You know, a big company for human terms of sort of a small to mid cap company. The fact that we don't remember them and we don't even acknowledge them today, I think has to do with the perversion. And I use that word purposely of what kind of financial capitalism has defined itself as not what it needs to be, but what it, what it is, or a lot of what it is today. And that's a product of all these companies going public in the eighties and Brown brothers never goes public. doesn't even occur to them. I kept trying to ask them like, so why, why didn't you go public? And they're like, you know, why don't we become purple? I mean, they, it, it wasn't even part of their mindset to go public. And, and part of that is that when you go pub, public, the, the incentive structure changes, mm -hmm. right? If you're Tim Cook at Apple, you could make $10 million personally from a deal. You're never going to lose $10 million personally from a deal. That's going to be dispersed among shareholders. Brown Brothers still, every deal they do, it's partner's money. And, and they could lose the money. So I'm, saying, that, so I'm saying that was the sea change in the early 80s of Wall Street yeah. when Bear Stearns was a partnership and, and, and everyone sat down. Any deal you went into, uh, it was your capital, partnership capital on the line and a Goldman Sachs as well. And once you take that out where it's heads I win, tails I don't lose, why the right. hell not? Right. And that makes total sense from an incentive structure. And look, my point at the end about Brown Brothers is one um, – there's also just the problem of like, you know, human beings and what narratives we pay attention to. One of the ironies of Brown Brothers is that because of Glass-Steagall in 1933, they hive off their investment bank, which you had to do by law. You couldn't be a commercial in an investment bank. Their investment bank, they stay a commercial bank because that was most of their business. Their investment bank eventually becomes Drexel Burnham Lambert and eventually becomes Michael Milken. Say what you will about Milken. Milken becomes an icon of a particular moment in Wall Street and famous and infamous. Brown Brothers becomes forgotten. And in a weird way, part of what I'm trying to say in the book is we shouldn't forget what is foundational to a system. 
and lionize what is either toxic or really exciting, you know? And that's a problem with how we understand capitalism, like a capitalism that understands its responsibility to the larger society, that is unabashed in its pursuit of profit, but with a sense of where risk exists, um, and a capitalism that understands that, that private good is embedded in, in public good, um, is, is, this, is the story of Brown Brothers for 200 years. And, and, and it could be the story in the future. You know, we, we choose the systems that we want to live in ever present and into the future. You know, nothing is written. So we have the ability to continue to rewrite, redefine, recreate, recast. And, and I think, I hope part of what the book does is it points in a different direction as to where capitalism could be than the one in which it is. And my final point about this is you don't want a world composed only of Brown brothers. Uh, one, I don't want a Brown Brothers world because, you know, you and I wouldn't have had a seat at that table. I mean, it was very exclusionary and it was very, you know, particular about who was allowed to be in, in those rooms. And the second thing is you don't want a capitalism world where only risk is driving decisions. You know, you do want Tesla, right? You do want innovation. You do want someone who's willing yeah, to go. Well, you, you, all the innovation that we've had, Brown Brothers would have never funded any of that. Right. So you do not want a world of only Brown Brothers. But I think in the ratio, right, if, if you're talking about a hub and a periphery or hub and spokes, today the hub has become risk capital. And that's probably overstating it, right? With all the regulations after 2008, 2009, the big money center banks are highly constrained about the risk they can take. So I understand this is a more complicated, but from in, in, in bold terms, I think you want at the core of a capitalist system, people who are profoundly mindful that, that money is power. And as power, it can do great good, but can also do harm. It's, it's like a force of nature. It can deluge, it can irrigate. Uh, and you want the people who are at the epicenter of it to understand that alchemical power and be mindful and respectful of it. And then on the periphery, you want the Elon Musk and the hedge funds and the, the VC funds who are like, I want to try to get 100 to 1 for my money. I don't care if I do nine zeros as long as one is a home run. Yeah, because and I think that's great. Because, you, because without that, you wouldn't have the Googles of this world. Right. You know, they went to those places. So I do hear what you're saying, and I don't disagree. I, I, I do agree that there needs to be a balance. But I think what, I, I think what, what I'm trying to get, what I'm, what I'm really hearing from you also, is not money and power for its own sake, but in combination of, I don't want to be trite in saying this, but in doing good, in terms of the response, I got it, the responsibility that this gives you. You can't just take money and, and accumulate it for its own sake. Right. You were privileged to get that. You were in a, and I think they all felt, and correct me if I'm wrong, they all felt they were in a responsible position and this just wasn't something that, wow, I'm part of this great thing. Let me go piss money out the window. Uh, let me have, you know, buy $2,000 bottle of champagne or go to a strip club. They didn't do that. They said, yeah. with this power, let me see how I can serve the greater good because in turn, it will benefit me as well as society. Right. Self, self-interested selflessness, right? It's, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's true. That's true. And yeah. nothing wrong with that. It's, it's no? you know, and, and look, we swing to extremes. One extreme is not going to be good and the other extreme certainly is not going to be good. It has to be this seesaw that it doesn't go up or down. It just kind of hovers in the middle somewhere. I, I think that that would be the ideal, which, you know, you have some business leaders today who do that. But not, I think not enough in the financial world. And I think Brown Brothers can represent a possible path 
and the fact that they are still around and amazingly profitable, and we don't pay attention to them. Yeah, but then they're, they're not profitable on the scale of you know. You look, I could hear, I hear what you're saying, but uh, you know, in 2007, 2008, I think you know all these guys got spanked. Uh, you know, you go to the extreme of risk, and in order to make huge amounts of return, huge leverage, you end up with these once every 10, 20, 20 I would say every 10 years, you come into these kind of attitude adjustments, and right. the system does change. But uh, in terms of making money, you know, the, the, uh, you know, um, some of these, their, their net revenue, their net uh, uh, profit, uh, Brown Brothers, is maybe half of what some hedge funds guys made last year. Totally, you know? totally. Um, but you also want a world of people who are, who are uh, responsible corporate citizens who are not flashy, right? You, you, like the world cannot be composed. Back to the the singles and the home runs thing. You know, you you want so so so. Do you want you want a world of Elon Musk's? That's really your my question, right? Yeah. You you want you want a few Elon Musk's. You want a few Steve Jobs. But in terms of the rest, you want more Warren Buffetts. You want more Charlie yeah. Mungers. You know, yeah. uh, so so. Um, I do hear what you're saying. I I I I can't make a conclusionary statement as to what the ideal is because the answer is it depends. When risk on risk risk on risk off, there are certain times we should be putting on, you know, hitting the pedal to the metal, and other times we should be taking our foot off the gas. But to, uh, to echo what you just said, which is in the book, the the idea is no matter which of those parts of the equation you're on, the idea that 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 there is a public good that you are responsible to, I think, is essential for everybody. Like no, nobody nobody gets a pass on that equation. Um, and I'm particularly critical of tech elites today, even more than financial elites, who seem to be you know, in some sort of la la land about the public dimensions of, of their private effects. Um, and we would all be better served by constantly creating a culture that is aware of the connectivity between, you know, there's no man's an island, no company can do this alone. We are all part of a larger society. And look, I know these things can sound hopelessly sort of idealistic in a, in a cynical world. Um, but I think we could also use some more idealism. Okay, let's leave it there, man. I, I, I can't top that. That's, you know, uh, so that rules out Google, Facebook, a whole bunch of other companies just through under the bus. But yeah, you know, look, uh, they, they, they uh, uh, you know, I think in a capitalist system, it really cuts you down to size uh, at some point where they become too big and uh, too overpowering where the marketplace will look for an alternative and, and yeah. we'll find it. and. You know, I remember back in the day, in the early, late 1990s and early 2000s, the big thing was the antitrust against Microsoft and Internet Explorer. And the marketplace found a way to break that so-called monopoly. You know, they, they had new, new, uh, new browsers come out. And, and, uh, and where is Internet Explorer today in terms of the browser wars? And the marketplace oh. took care of that. Yeah. I, so I, I do, and I'm not an on-run type of guy, but I do hear what you're saying, and, and I don't know what the proper mix is, but I'm glad you brought up the question. I'm glad you tried to address it in the book. I didn't agree with everything at the end, you know, your, your conclusionary statements on that, or trying to really, I shouldn't say conclusionary, you're trying to, you're trying to, you're trying to come up to a, 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 an end point of what you learned from all of this, seeing right. the Brown brothers on one side, seeing the Merrill Lynch's during 2007, or Bank of America do the 2007, 2008, and trying to find uh, uh, you know, a medium. So, okay, uh, I'm with you. Uh, Zachary Carabillman, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. The name of the book, folks, is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. 
It's it's a it's a good read. I want to tell you, heavily researched, man. You did a you did a uh, a phenomenal job of doing that. In fact, at some points, I kept saying, "How the hell does he know that?" But I I do remember listening to something uh, you said on another podcast where uh, their 150th anniversary, they basically made this an easy job for you opening the archives because they were there. Yeah. So that was, it was not the hardest research. Yeah, but don't tell your publisher. Don't tell your, don't tell your publisher that. Let him think that you work real hard doing that. All right, Zachary, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.